Welcome back to Between the Killers and Me. We're your hosts, I'm Eden. And I'm Charlie. And we're here to kick off your weekends with new cases of murder, mystery, and survival every week. On today's episode, we're covering the case of Brandon Tina. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. You can find our links in the episode description. Before we get into it, we also want to mention, please do not harass anyone we talk about in today's case. During our discussions, we are expressing our own opinions based on facts we find out about the case. Trigger warning, rape, and transphobia. Stacey Deresmo, writing for Out Magazine, indicated that Brandon himself did not commonly refer to himself as Brandon Tina. It is important to note that other names associated with him include his legal name, as well as alternate aliases such as Billy Brenson and Brandon Ray. Brandon was born on December 12, 1972 in Lincoln, Nebraska to Joanne Brandon, according to official records. Tragically, Brandon's father had lost his life in a car accident in Lancaster County approximately eight months prior to Brandon's birth. Consequently, Brandon was raised by his mother as a single parent. During his early years, Brandon and his older sister Tammy resided with their maternal grandmother in Lincoln. However, when Brandon reached the age of three and Tammy was six, their mother reclaimed custody of both children. The family took up residence in the Pine Acre Mobile Home Park located in northeast Lincoln. Joanne, in her role as the family's primary caregiver, received disability checks and worked as a clerk in a woman's retail store in Lincoln, diligently striving to provide for their needs. Tragically, during their tender years, both Brandon and Tammy experienced significant trauma as victims of sexual abuse from their uncle. Brandon's family members characterized him as a tomboy since early childhood, displaying traits that deviated from societal gender norms. Brandon displayed a strong preference for donning masculine attire as opposed to conventional feminine garments. His mannerisms and actions often mirrored those of boys within his local community. As he progressed through high school, he embarked on romantic relationships with girls, further solidifying his affinity for a male identity. Notably, he began adopting masculine names, initially opting for Billy before ultimately settling on the name Brandon. Heartbreakingly, Brandon's mother originally adamantly rejected his male self-identification, persisting in referring to him as her daughter. However, in recent years, she has grown to accept his identity. Brandon and his sister were enrolled in St. Mary's Elementary School and later attended Pius X High School in Lincoln. It was during this time that some individuals recalled Brandon as socially awkward. In his second year of high school, Brandon underwent a significant transformation in his religious beliefs, rejecting Christianity after engaging in a protest with a priest from Pius X regarding Christian perspectives on abstinence and homosexuality. Concurrently, he began to rebel against the school's dress code policy, purposefully flouting it to express his gender identity by adopting a more masculine fashion sense. As Brandon entered the first semester of his senior year, a representative from the U.S. Army visited the high school, aiming to encourage students to consider enlistment in the armed forces. Motivated by a desire to participate in Operation Desert Shield, Brandon enlisted in the United States Army shortly after turning 18 years old. Regrettably, his aspirations were thwarted when he failed the written entrance exam by listing his biological sex as male, highlighting the limitations and challenges he faced due to societal expectations and legal restrictions. Approaching the culmination of his high school years, Brandon underwent a noticeable transformation, displaying an uncharacteristic, outgoing demeanor that left a lasting impression on his classmates, who affectionately labeled him a class clown. Simultaneously, Brandon's academic performance began to decline sharply, leading to a pattern of school truancy and academic failures. Consequently, he faced expulsion from Pius X High School in June 1991, a mere three days before the scheduled graduation ceremony. 
With limited prospects for a promising future, Brandon found himself navigating the realm of survival by engaging in various odd jobs while also succumbing to criminal activities such as check forgery and credit card theft. His involvement in these illicit pursuits ultimately resulted in the convictions for check fraud, leading to probationary sentences. In January 1992, Brandon underwent a comprehensive psychiatric evaluation, which yielded the diagnosis of a severe sexual identity crisis as the underlying condition. Concerns for Brandon's well-being prompted his admission to the Lancaster County Crisis Center, where he received diligent care to ensure his safety and alleviate any potential risk of self-harm. Following a brief stay, Brandon was discharged from the center three days later and promptly commenced a series of therapy sessions, often accompanied by his mother or sister, in an effort to navigate his complex personal journey. During this period, Brandon sought guidance from David Bolkovac, the director of the Gay and Lesbian Resource Center at the University of Nebraska, who provided counseling for a perceived gender identity crisis. It is important to note that at the time, many individuals mistakenly assumed that Brandon identified as a lesbian. However, Bukovac acknowledged the fallacy of this assumption, clarifying that Brandon firmly believed that he was a man confined within a female body. Brandon's self-perception and experience did not align with a lesbian identity, rather, he strongly identified as a man. Seeking a fresh start, Brandon relocated to Falls City, Nebraska in November 1993. In that new setting, embracing his male identity, Brandon sought refuge under the care of a young single mother named Lisa Lambert. Some accounts suggest that he also engaged in a romantic relationship with Lambert, but there's no way to confirm this. Brandon became associated with a circle of youth, among them individuals with criminal backgrounds, including John Lauder and Marvin T. Neeson. During this time, Brandon entered into a romantic relationship with Lana Tisdale, an 18-year-old friend of Lambert. However, on December 19, 1993, Brandon once again encountered legal trouble and was arrested for check fraud. It was Tisdale who utilized funds from her father to secure his release on bail. It was during this period, while Brandon was in the designated female section of the jail, that Tisdale discovered his transgender identity. Curious and seeking clarity, Tisdale confronted Brandon about his gender, to which he disclosed his self-perception as a transgender male pursuing a surgical transition. It was during a court appearance and subsequent publication in the local newspaper that Brandon's birth name was disclosed, inadvertently revealing his biological sex to the public. I would like to mention in the movie Boys Don't Cry, which was based off of this case, they pursued the relationship following this, but in real life, Lana Tisdale broke off the relationship after she found out about Brandon, and then she filed a lawsuit as the movie didn't correctly pursue the truth. The disclosure of Brandon's assigned female sex at birth triggered a strong reaction from Lauder and Neeson, who had previously perceived Brandon as biologically male. During a Christmas Eve gathering, an unfortunate incident unfolded when Neeson and Lauder seized Brandon, compelling him to remove his pants as proof of his anatomical characteristics, thereby revealing his female genitalia. Disturbingly, this act of aggression extended beyond mere humiliation, as Brandon was subjected to physical assault and coerced into exposing himself in the presence of other party attendees, including Tisdale. Although Tisdale resisted looking until compelled to do so, she remained silent throughout the ordeal. Subsequently, Lauder and Neeson further assaulted Brandon and forcibly placed him inside a vehicle. They proceeded to drive to a location near meat packing plant in Richardson County where Neeson and Lauder gang-raped Brandon. Subsequently, they returned to Neeson's residence where Brandon was instructed to take a shower. However, seizing a moment of opportunity, Brandon managed to escape from the bathroom by secretively climbing out of the window. Seeking refuge, he made his way to Tisdale's house. 
Tisdell, recognizing the gravity of the situation, encouraged Brandon to report the incident to the authorities. However, it is important to note that Neeson and Lauder had explicitly warned Brandon against divulging any details about the rape to the police, threatening severe consequences and even suggesting they would silence him permanently. Despite these chilling warnings, Brandon was convinced by Tisdell to proceed with filing a police report, placing his trust in the hope that justice would prevail. Regrettably, the Richardson County Sheriff exhibited a disheartening lack of seriousness when confronted with Brandon's account. Instead of focusing on the gravity of the situation, the sheriff appeared more intrigued by Brandon's transgender identity posing insensitive and demeaning questions such as, quote, Do you ever pretend to be a boy by using a sock in your pants? End quote. And, quote, Why do you associate with girls instead of boys, considering that you are biologically female? End quote. Despite Brandon's attempts to discuss the rape, the sheriff's inquiries frequently veered into territory that was degrading and dehumanizing. Brandon sought medical assistance at the emergency room where a standard rape kit was assembled. However, it is unfortunate to note that the kit was later misplaced or lost. During the course of the investigation, the sheriff further interrogated Brandon about the assault. Remarkably, his focus on Brandon's transgender status persisted, leading Brandon to find his line of questioning both rude and unnecessary, prompting Brandon to refuse to provide answers. Upon learning of Brandon's report, Neeson and Lauder initiated a search for him. Despite their efforts, they were unable to locate him. Three days later, the police interviewed Neeson and Lauder. However, the sheriff decided against their arrest, questioning the character of Brandon by remarking, quote, What kind of person was she? The first few times we arrested her, she was presenting herself as a male. End quote. I don't really have anything to add about the case so far. I'm, I'm just sitting here baffled. Honestly, the sheriff is not even, like, the worst part. Later, way later in the case, I go over, like, how the media perceived the case. Yeah. Brandon. All of the newspapers were criticizing Brandon's identity mm-hmm. and referring to him as a girl. At approximately 1 a.m. on December 31st, 1993, Neeson and Lauder forcibly entered Lambert's residence. Upon their intrusion, they discovered Lambert in bed and demanded to know Brandon's whereabouts. Despite their demands, Lambert steadfastly refused to disclose any information. Undeterred, Neeson proceeded to search the premises and eventually located Brandon concealed beneath a blanket near the foot of the bed. Inquiring further, the men demanded to know whether there were other individuals present in the house, to which Lambert disclosed the presence of Philip Devine, who was then involved in a relationship with Tisdell's sister. In a shocking turn of events, Neeson and Lauder shot Brandon in the stomach. Neeson later testified in court, revealing that he had observed Brandon experiencing involuntary movements. In response, Neeson requested a life from Lauder, and with this weapon in hand, he inflicted a fatal stab wound to Brandon's chest, ensuring his demise as per Neeson's chilling testimony. Tragically, Neeson and Lauder not only targeted Brandon, but also perpetrated acts of violence against Lambert and their friend Philip Devine. In a brutal and senseless act, they took the lives of Lambert and Devine. Tragically, the sole survivor of the horrific incident was Lambert's eight-month-old son, who was left unattended in his crib, crying inconsolably for hours on end. The heart-wrenching scene of an innocent child abandoned amidst the aftermath of violence added another layer of sorrow to the already devastating circumstances. Following their heinous acts, Neeson and Lauder departed the scene, only to be apprehended and subsequently charged with murder. During the following trial, Neeson provided a chilling testimony, revealing the gruesome details of their actions. According to Neeson's account, he initially shot Lambert in the stomach before momentarily leaving the room to locate Divine. 
Upon returning with Divine, Neeson proceeded to shoot Lambert once again. The perpetrators then ushered Divine into the living room, where he was seated on the couch and subjected to two gunshot wounds. Neeson returned to the bedroom, where he callously fired several additional shots at Lambert. Having carried out their heinous acts, Neeson and Lauder fled the scene, disposing of their weapons and gloves by discarding them onto a frozen river. They then made their way back to Falls City. However, their freedom was short-lived as they were apprehended by authorities later that same afternoon. During their arrest, Neeson disclosed to deputies that he had witnessed John Lauder brutally shoot three individuals to their deaths in Humboldt. Prompted by this information, law enforcement officials proceeded to the river, where they successfully recovered the discarded gloves and weapons. Notably, among the recovered items was a sheath bearing Lauder's name, providing incriminating evidence linking them to the crime. Neeson made allegations against Lauder, accusing him of carrying out the murders, but in a bid to secure a lesser sentence, Neeson confessed to being an accessory to the rape and murder. As part of his cooperation, Neeson testified against Lauder during the trial, leading to his own sentencing of life imprisonment. However, Lauder strongly denied Neeson's testimony, and his credibility was called into question. Nevertheless, the jury found Lauder guilty of the murders, and he was handed a death sentence. In a significant development in September 2007, Neeson recanted his previous testimony against Lauder. He now claimed sole responsibility for shooting Brandon and asserted that Lauder had not been involved in the murders. However, in 2009, Lauder's appeal, which relied on Neeson's revised testimony as evidence of his innocence, was rejected by the Nebraska Supreme Court. The court held that, even with Neeson's revised testimony, the involvement of both Lauder and Neeson in the murder remained unchanged, rendering the specific identity of the shooter legally irrelevant. Joanne Brandon took legal action against Richardson County and the sheriff, holding them accountable for their failure to protect her child. Initially seeking $350,000 in damages, Brandon was granted a mere $17,360 as the district judge controversially asserted that Brandon bore some responsibility for his own untimely demise due to his perceived lifestyle. I don't know if I honestly have anything to say other than, like, that's bullshit. You suck. <laughs> that's all I gotta say. Yeah. No, you suck. Not, no one's responsible for their own murder. What? Like, what is it with people in that? Like, yeah, Brandon was a trans man. Yeah. Like, what What the hell does that have to do with him being murdered? Like, yeah, you died and it kind of was your fault because you thought you were a man. Like, the fuck? Yeah, no, th- th- ridiculous. And this is just a, a common theme that pops up in a lot of LGBTQ plus cases where the victims are blamed. However, undeterred by the initial setback, Brandon persisted in her pursuit of justice Finally, in 2001, she was awarded $98,000, although still falling significantly short of her original claim. Shockingly, the sheriff faced minimal consequences for his actions. In a disheartening turn of events, the sheriff went on to be voted as commissioner of Richardson County a few years after the murder. Furthermore, he secured a position at the very prison that housed Lauder, only retiring from his duties later on. According to accounts from another sheriff acquainted with the sheriff in the case, it appears that he had managed to rationalize his role to the point of absolving himself of any blame. This lack of accountability and the apparent indifference displayed by the sheriff towards the tragedy continued to be sources of distress and frustration for those affected by the case. The mishandling of Brandon's story by the media was a disheartening aspect that persisted for years. Press outlets including the Associated Press, Playboy, and even LGBTQ-friendly publications like The Village Voice portrayed him in an inaccurate and insensitive manner. The Associated Press referred to him as a, quote, cross-dressing rape accuser, end quote, 
while Playboy insensitively labeled his murder as the, quote, death of a deceiver, end quote. The Village Voice, despite its LGBTQ plus friendly stance, misgendered Brandon and portrayed him as a, quote, lesbian who hated her body, end quote, due to the past experience of abuse. However, the release of the film Boys Don't Cry in 1999 played a pivotal role in shifting the narrative surrounding Brandon Tina. Hilary Swank's powerful portrayal of the ill-fated young man prompted many to reconsider their perceptions of transgender individuals. Although the film did not single-handedly bring about an immediate transformation in societal attitudes, it did contribute to an initiating a long-overdue national conversation on the matter. Boys Don't Cry served as a catalyst for change, opening the door to discussions and challenging prevailing biases. It helped shed light on the struggles faced by transgender individuals and encouraged a more compassionate understanding of their experiences. While not everyone was deeply affected by the film, its impact was undeniable and it played a significant role in fostering a more inclusive and empathetic dialogue. First of all, I have a bone to pick with this sheriff. Literally. There is a transcript of the conversation that he had with Brandon, and he said many more demeaning things than Eden mentioned. They they were awful. Like, I, completely diminishing his identity. I initially had put them in my little script here, but I just, I was like, no, that this is like, it was so bad that I'm like, this is just honestly is very humiliating. He was just like kind of being like, he was amazed in the worst way by the fact of Brandon being trans. Mm-hmm. Some of his questions were like very specific, like stuff like regarding, you know, um, his female genitalia um and there's just like you know brendan was just there to report the crime report the rape trying to get neeson and lauder in trouble because they full-on raped him but the sheriff was like honestly he was just more obsessed with brandon's trans identity that's yeah. like all he could focus on is fucked the questions that i read i'm like why as a sheriff investigating a rape case would you ever ask that i i do know during the 90s like it was a there was a big shift happening uh, towards acceptance of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. There was acceptance starting surrounding gay and lesbian identities. However, still to this day, LGBTQ people face discrimination. Yeah. And they did even more so in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I think that honestly it could have been a stance of like, never meeting a trans person, having this internalized transphobia that he's not outright admitting, and just being, like, fucking shocked by a trans identity. My thing is, is that, I'm just gonna throw this out there, I grew up in a very small town. I was very closed off from a lot of things. My, my town was very white. There were, like, maybe... I don't know. I think there was one black person in my entire high school, both elementary and high school. That was it. And there was no gay people. There was no transgender people. Nothing. I think my parents, whom I've already probably mentioned once or twice, were the only gay couple in the entire town. Which, that came along with its own struggles, but nothing too bad. But it, my town was very right-wing. Um, there's a pro-life sign literally right before you get into the town. That's how right-wing they are. I feel like we grew up in the same town, but we didn't. But we did because kind of. we have the exact same experience. Other than your parents being bullied for being gay, I was the one being bullied. 
like I wasn't being I wasn't bullied for my parents being gay there was just like a lot of odd questions that came from it and I'm like why does it matter my thing though is that like I grew up in this predominantly white straight as shit town and so when I moved to Edmonton you know seeing people of like all races and all of all genders and stuff it was at first I was like well like I've never really experienced this but at the end of the day like it's just like it is what it is and I think that like moving to a bigger city like when I moved to Edmonton as well like I it was refreshing to see people identifying of all different kinds of identities it was a good change from the small town pace the point that I'm getting at is the fact that like you can't blame a lot of your thoughts and stuff on you know like I can get sometimes like you know your parents were very Christian and they're very transphobic they hate trans people they hate black people whatever but at the same time like my other side of the family is very strongly like that but like I'm not so you have the choice to decide whether or not to be transphobic you have the choice to decide whether you're not gonna hate black people like like I've said before, you're not born homophobic. It's something that you're conditioned with growing up, either by your parents or peers. I know in school a lot, it's a big thing to act homophobic with your friends. And, you know, for example, growing up, that's so gay was a big phrase in my era. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I got that. And uh, I remember my uh, social studies teacher one of my favorite teachers I had, he had a poster in his classroom that said, that's so gay, with a cross throughout the gay. And it had a whole bunch of other words around it that you could use instead of that. That's so weird, that's so dumb, that's so stupid. whatever. Yeah. And I remember we were in class one day and there was a student walking down the hall, yelling to his friend, and he said, that's so gay. And my teacher pulled him in and was like, look at this poster and he was like got that (laughs) and then just sent the kid on his way after he made sure to show him the poster and I think that it was it was really nice to have like I said I grew up in a small town but there were a couple teachers in my high school who were accepting and who had those anti that's so gay posters Mm mm-hmm But I also experienced some discrimination coming from other teachers. Mm -hmm. My outdoor leadership teacher, for example, I identify as non-binary. And when we went on a canoe trip, I expressed that I wanted to tent with a certain group of people who was okay with tenting with me and was cool with my identity. But he disregarded my wishes and threw me in a tent with some random girls. Hmm. It was a fine time. They were nice. But... Not really what I wanted. And he also made weird comments of what I was doing to transition. Growing up in a small town, you are going to face those sort of things. But it was really shocking to hear coming from a figure of authority. I could see that, yes. Especially since you were a minor. It's just like, why are you as an adult asking that question? It, it was interesting. Especially since it has absolutely nothing to do with you. Why would you ask? It's not like you're close or anything. <laughs> it's like being going up to a random person being like, what are you doing to transition? Like, right. You don't fucking know who I am. Why do I care? Like, the fuck? <laughs> um, but yeah, moving to Edmonton was really eye-opening. And granted, there are still people here who suck, who preach fuck on the yeah. streets being like, 
Praise Jesus, we hate the gays. You guys are sinning if you act on your homosexual thoughts, you weirdos, gross. Like that stupid man who is on White Ave and is on a stupid <laughs> fucking wooden box and he's like, you guys suck because you don't believe in Jesus Christ. Accept him or y'all are going to fucking hell. Shut there the are hell up. So many people like that in Edmonton. For real. However, there is a large majority of people who are also accepting. And that is so refreshing to see coming from a small town. Yeah, from a small town. Like my parents weren't bullied or anything that I know of. But I mean, I feel like it was also just very weird because there was not a whole lot of that where I came from. And the whole point of what I was just trying to say is just like, you can choose. Everybody has a choice. Even if you grew up in a home where it was just very like homophobic, like you can at the end of the day be like, is this okay to be thinking this? Like, is it okay to hate on a random person because they like the same gender as them or they they are a man but they were originally a woman like you have the choice to not be a bag of shit exactly and people don't have the choice for how they identify so you can choose to be a piece of shit but you can't choose to be gay you just you just know like i know my mom my stepmom she said ever since she was a kid like little she knew she liked girls. And I'm like, yeah, ever since I was a kid, I knew I liked guys. Like I said, it it's is something what that... it is. You just learn it about yourself. Like I said, you can't choose to be gay. You can't choose to be gay, but you can choose to be a piece of shit. Yeah. That's My thing it. is like, you're not born. Nobody's born homophobic. You just learn to be homophobic, but you can unlearn that. So don't be a bag of shit. I don't know if I have a lot else to say about this case, other than if you're doing your own research regarding this case, you will come across a lot of newspapers demeaning Brandon, like Eden mentioned. Mm -hmm. Basically, every newspaper that initially reported on the case said that Brandon was confused. They identified him as a woman, which really fucked up. I read a statistic in regards to our last episode by the human rights campaign completely forget the actual numbers but they said that in the original news reportings of many cases of murdered transgender individuals they often are initially misgendered by the media which is fucked it's like the first thing media people do it's just like oh brandon was a dude no woman and it's just like it's and not it's that like hard to be like he him brandon man I don't know if they're wanting to report on it like how it is or whatever, but very odd. And the thing that keeps happening. I think it's it's still a thing in media to this day where something happens or whatever. They're very quick to be like transgender. No, no, not in this media studio. You're born a woman. You're a woman. You're born a man. You're a man. And it's just like, why do you care so much if they are a man? They're a man. End of story. I don't think I have anything else that to add. Yeah, no, me neither. So. All I will say is that this happened, like, not even that long ago. This was in 1993. <gasps> Sorry. You, no, you weren't alive. No. I did want to mention, though, um, kind of pick your brain. Do you think that Neeson recanted his statement later on 
about like Lauder not being involved in the crime in order to save Lauder from death row. Was Neeson put on death row? Lauder was put on death row. Lauder was put on death row because Neeson originally was like, I didn't do this, Lauder did. But then when everything was going on in the trial, he was like, actually, yeah, I did some of the work. And tried to get Lauder saved from death row? I don't know. All I know is that the death penalty was officially done in Nebraska in 2015. Okay. So maybe he was trying to save him because everything that I mentioned was between like 2007 to 2009. So like maybe he was like, oh my God, like that's my friend. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it was Neeson who committed all of like the shootings against everybody. So like why would he feel guilty about one more person? I don't know. And you you killed three people. Like you're just feeling guilty now. Like, I think maybe because, like, they were close. Like, they were friends when Brandon came into their life. But, like, at the same time, it's just, like, you originally accused him of doing all of the work and that you didn't do anything. Yeah, no. You can't start feeling guilty now. I don't know. Yeah. That's that's my hot take on it. I don't think Neeson... At the end of the day, I don't think Neeson actually gave a shit about anybody but himself. Yeah, but. that's how it... That's how these guys came across, honestly. All right, Eden. What are your plans tonight? Uh, drink alcohol. Do some karaoke. I'm gonna convince Eden. Maybe. I promise. I'm convincing Eden. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? I don't well, even know what my karaoke song is. That should be the question of the day. What is your karaoke song? <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. We're gonna go enjoy some karaoke. Heck yeah, we are. And take care. Have a good rest of your day. And happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month, everybody.